Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts, and I'm really, really excited today in the studio, have my friend Bill Haslam, who served as governor of the state of Tennessee for eight years. Uh, before that, he was mayor of Knoxville, Tennessee, and uh, one of the most uh, successful uh, business leaders in the United States of America. And uh, so I'm really glad to have you with us, Governor, today. Uh, yeah, I'm glad to be here. I'm usually on the listening end. I'm a devoted listener of signposts and several of the conversations you've had. I think I've texted you after a couple of them have been memorable for me. So well, thank you. It's, it's an honor to be here. Well, you're not governor anymore. I know. I, I know that every time I get stuck in traffic. You know, people used to always complain to me about Nashville traffic. I said, it's not a problem. Hit those blue lights and go around. And now I know what they mean. Yeah. Well, I, I can testify. I saw you drive up uh, today, which is not something I was accustomed to seeing before. So now, when you're looking back right. over a time in, in office, there's probably not many people listening to this who are ever going to serve as governor. Right. Oh, some will right. or have, but everybody's going to have to make tough decisions. Right. And so when I think of some of the decisions that you had to make, I think of one of them in particular, Centoya uh, Brown in uh, Memphis. Mm-hmm. Memphis, no, right? No, Nashville, yeah. right here. Oh, Nashville, that's right. 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 Okay, yeah. Right. It was a, a really tough decision, I would imagine, that you had to make. Explain to folks who aren't familiar with that case what had gone on. Sure. Um, ironically, I was with Centoya last night. Oh, uh, were you? Okay. Uh, yeah. And uh, we, we had dinner together. So uh, Centoya's case is one that unfortunately is not as rare as we would hope. Um mm due to some life circumstances, bad decisions. She ends up on the street, um, gets caught in the sex traffic um, trade. A man picks her up for sex. She ends up shooting and killing him, uh, which she admits to, Mm -hmm. makes a horrible 16-year-old, not well-developed brain decision Mm -hmm. that she obviously regrets to this day. Ends up getting tried as an adult. She's a 16-year-old and gets sentenced to life in prison, which basically— would have meant she would have gotten out at the age of, I think, 68. Mm. And so her case attracted national attention uh, through a documentary. And then, you know, she had some uh, some of the famous celebrities, the uh, Snoop Dogs and Kim Kardashian and LeBron James mm-hmm. start tweeting about her, and all of a sudden we're flooded, and her case gets a lot of attention. And so this is near the end of our time in office. Um, governors are not nearly as powerful as most people think they are. They People think, oh, you're the governor, make it happen. But, mm-hmm. well, there's a legislature and there's mm-hmm. constitutional officers and all this other thing. But one place governors are really powerful is 
and the whole interest of pardons and clemencies and sentence commutations. The governor can almost do whatever he or she wants as long as you're not taking financial reward for it. And so um, I had the decision of should we commute her sentence? She had been like, tried as a, as a 16-year-old sentence to basically the rest of her life. The difficulties for us were, she said, she she admitted she shot this guy. Yeah. So that's number one. Number two, um, I, I unfortunately became aware that in our system, we have a lot of juveniles who've been sentenced to life sentences. Um, and her case had gotten all this attention. And so was it fair to grab this one that we mm-hmm. knew about when mm-hmm. we, I knew there, there, there are other Centoyas out yeah. there. Was that fair to do, so to speak? And then- like I said, just the whole case because it had gotten all this attention. Should we treat it any differently? Long story short, we I did decide to commute her sentence um, to a 15-year sentence, which would expire, and she got out in August a couple of months ago. Uh, and there were several reasons for it. Uh, number one, she, you know, we want re- we want rehabilitation to work, uh, and it had in her case. She'd gone on, gotten her her undergraduate degree from Lipscomb with a 4.0. Mm. Um, I don't know how many of your listeners had 4.0s. I didn't. Uh, uh, yeah. And. But it also is a story of redemption. It, mm-hmm. it is a story of Christ working in her life, and her personal testimony was one that was, uh, to me, was, again, what you hope to happen. And then I think there also, you know, you become aware of the sex trafficking issue is real, is, is you know, several people point out to me, no 16-year-old girl chooses to prostitute herself. Mm-hmm. It just They right. just don't, okay? There's just no such thing as that. Yeah. Um, and then um, the the whole issue with juveniles be sentenced to long to long sentences. I became aware um, was you know wasn't uh, was the right thing. And then there were, there are some racial considerations. Well, uh, well, African American woman. I think there are racial disparities in our sentencing that we need to look mm-hmm. at. So one of my regrets is that as governor, I didn't you know I became a, you, sometimes you become aware of things late yeah. in the process. I would love to have a chance to address juvenile sentencing uh, and just looking at our judicial system in general, particularly the length of sentences, I'm not certain are, are as healthy as they or, or as well-directed as they could be. Yeah. Now, one of the things in all that conversation, at least with me, one of the things that never came up ever was yeah. your sense of your own political ramifications. Yeah. But, you know, when I'm looking at that from the front end, in front of it, I can think of all sorts of situations where there have yeah. been governors who have pardoned somebody or commuted somebody, and then later that person got into some trouble, yeah. and that was a big political liability. And so I think that could cause somebody to say, you know, why risk it? And there, there's, I mean, you definitely have, it's definitely, I guess, part of the equation, but we tried to, you know, you try on those things because there's always a, a hundred. I mean, there's you have that on one side, and on the other side, you have the fact that we were getting literally a hundred thousand emails and phone calls. Yeah. And so you try to say all, you try to make all that extraneous to the situation, and say, I don't think you want a governor deciding something like that because the number of emails they get, yeah. or how many protests shut down, you know, on yeah. appearance. Nor do you want him, him or her to say, I'm going to do it because this could help me or hurt me politically. Mm-hmm. So you really try your best to screen off all of that and mm-hmm. say, well, what's the, what's the right thing to do here? And and again, people give me, like, oh, wow, you're the governor that stepped out into this boldly. She had a team of lawyers, some of the very best lawyers in Nashville that literally just pro bono worked for her for years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I kind of come on the scene late in the movie, mm-hmm. if you will. And these folks have been working devotedly and folks at Lipscomb helping her get her degree. And then Centoya herself, who 
again, at the end of the day, if, you know, if Centoyo was sitting in here, you'd say, I'll, I'll trust her. You know, she, yeah. she's the real deal. Yeah. So you've had to, not just in this case, but in probably a thousand cases, and I think most people listening to this will face this at some point, sort of wrestle through your conscience as a yeah. Christian. Yeah. And to say, what really applies in terms of the decisions that I make yeah. and what doesn't, which is uh, honestly not just a case for people mm-hmm. who are in public life, but yeah. people have to make those decisions when they're working in the factory right. or working in right. the, the cafeteria or wherever they are. So how do you make those decisions as a Christian? So, I mean, for instance, when you were governor at one point, the legislature passed a, a bill to make the Bible right. state book. Right. I mean, who could... Who could right. oppose the Bible's a great book? Right, right, uh, right, right. But you had to make the decision that's not the right thing to do. So how do you make that decision that as a Christian, what your responsibilities are personally, and then the responsibilities that you have as a public officer? Yeah. I, I think you're right in that we all make those decisions all the time in work as parents, uh, as yeah. friends. We make those decisions all the time. The difference in being in public office is you're you're making them in the in the public, yeah. and there's yeah. people that have opinions ab- about everything. You know, one of the things that I I think helps you in office, uh, and I think it's something we could all use a little bit more of, is because you know your own sinfulness and brokenness. You start with the idea of I, I could be wrong here. Yeah. yeah. And. You know, today, I think part of the issue in our political world is we don't have this sense that uh, Howard Baker was United States Senator for Tennessee and, you know, had, a, I think, a great political career, had this saying that always remember the other fellow might be right. Yeah. And so I think in, in a lot of these, you start with a sense of I've, I've been wrong before and I could be wrong on this, so I want to make certain I do my work here. And then second, you try to see, like, what does Scripture say about this? Um, and then, uh, then you— you come back to, I think, this idea of you have to also believe that you're called to be doing what you're doing. Yeah. And if you think you're called to be doing what you're doing, then the decision should always be what you think is the right one, not the political one, because it's like it's it's kind of a it's a contradiction to think, well, I'm called to be here, but I'm still going to make a political decision because that's the that's the that's the pragmatic thing to do yeah. here. You know, one of the things I've noticed talking about people everyone having to live this. One of the things that I've noticed that has happened is that some of the considerations that people in the political arena uh, had to make before, now everybody has to make in terms of criticism. Right. So when you're in public life, when you're right. your governor, you were always a very popular governor, but there's there's got to be criticism coming in uh, <laughs> all the time. Now, uh, you know, if you're a sophomore in high right. school, you're also looking at your right. poll numbers right. uh, on right. social media and, and having this and, tendency yep. of, yeah, am, am I, is my identity found in people's approval or right. disapproval of me? How do you navigate that without being either – crushed by it or elated uh, by yeah. it. So, you, you know, I think, again, one of the things as believers, and here I have to be careful, I don't talk a better game than I play because I'm like everybody else. My, I, I go up and down according to how I think people are feeling about mm-hmm. me, and I, I wish I wasn't that way. But when you run for office, it, it's like, a, I think I stole this from David Axelrod, who worked for Obama. But it's like an X-ray of the soul mm. because when you run for office— it's like you're out there being evaluated by every by everyone, and you just can't help but 
all the anxieties that you think would come with that do come with that. Yeah. And yet I'm one of these people, I'm, I'm saying, no, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication yeah. with Thanksgiving, you know, um, I, I believe that verse. So I think our, our call is to say, if we, if we honestly believe that we're the child of God that we say we are, then hopefully we can push aside how many likes we got on mm-hmm. our Facebook page or whatever it is um, and know that our security is tied wholly elsewhere. Now, like so I want to be really careful. I, it's easy for me to talk a better game than I play yeah. there. But, yeah. but I think that's, that's where – I think your point is a great one. All of us today are in a world where everybody feels part of our role is to be the judge and evaluator of everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I'm, I'm, I get to ask a one or two questions here, but you at times are that way. I mean, just in your role with the uh, Ethics Religious Liberty Center, I mean, there's times you take stands that you know aren't going to be really popular, and, and, and you're also representing a whole entity that's not just you. How, mm-hmm. how do you make the decision to do something that you know might not be that popular? Well, for for me, a lot of it has to do with a sense of judgment seat of Christ. I mean, I think that's what the Apostle Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 4 when he says, I consider it a small thing to be judged by you. Right. Not that I don't care what anybody right. thinks, but to say, I, I know right. I have to ultimately give an accountability right. that makes all of these things relative. Having said that, I don't like it yeah. uh, at all. And so, you know, a lot of times there will be people who will come up and they think it's encouraging to tell me about some negative thing that somebody said, yeah. because I think they know people for whom that is the case. Right. You know, they really like right. Uh, right. and I don't. Right. Uh, so it's a difficult, I mean, I'm like you, it, uh, it, it's easier to, to talk about this than it is to actually live it. Yeah. And I think that probably, I, mean, I think there are some people who are just totally invulnerable for good reasons and for bad. Uh, and I admire uh, those yeah. people, but I'm not one of them, and, and I'm not either. And and if uh, if my wife is listening to this, she would be echoing that. Yeah. She she would be providing the strong second. That like I said, and, and unfortunately, it is one of the the hard parts about being in public life is there is a sense of vulnerability. Well, and it reveals idolatry it uh, because uh, one of the I don't look at stuff. You know, I, I don't right. one way or the other typically yeah. because I know that it's not good for me to do that in either direction. What helped me was there was actually an interview between Alec Baldwin, of all people, <laughs> and Paul Simon, the singer. Uh, and they were just talking about uh, they're talking about this, and I think it was Paul Simon who said, "You know, I don't need you to love me or to hate me either way." Just talking yeah, about right, strangers. Right, right. He said, because if I concentrate on that in either direction, I'm not going to be able to do what I'm called to do. Right. And I thought, you know, that's exactly right. And that's very hard when yeah. you're in public life and yeah. making the sorts of – you know, another thing, though, that I think is really hard is you're teaching right now a class at Vanderbilt right, right. Uh, with John Meacham. So you're dealing with right. uh, with very young people. A lot of people – and we have a lot of, you know, 18, 20-year-olds uh, who listen to this – some of them maybe feel feel called to yep. political life, right. but they're Christians, right. and they're really reluctant right. because they see what has happened to some people in terms of their Impression. consciences. Yeah. And I'm one of those people who used to say, oh, you know, that's a caricature. Most people. But now I'm in a situation where, having done this for a long time, 
I meet a lot of people. I mean, nobody says in public everything they think in private. That wouldn't be wise to do. But I meet a lot of people who will say the exact opposite thing. You know, we're on television when we're during a break. Right, They'll right. say the exact opposite right, thing right. than what they say when the, right, right. So there are people who say, how can I really do this and not end up kind of mortgaging who I am yeah. in terms of my character and my, my call to Christ? What advice would you give to somebody like that? Well, again, I, I think you have to come back to look at this idea as um, of politics as a vocation or a calling. And if you really do think this is what God's called me to, then hopefully with that comes the confidence that, well, I can trust him then Mm -hmm. to try to be consistent. And and I emphasize the try to be consistent because none of us are as consistent as we like to be, but I can trust him to say, okay, this is a hard one. There's going to be a lot of people that have opinions and this may or may not help me politically. But if, if I honestly think I'm called to be here, then I think I can be consistent. Mm. And wouldn't you say, and again, I think this applies really to almost every calling, not just public life. Wouldn't you say being willing to be out of it is part of that, to be able to do it well? You have, I remember when I first ran for mayor, and again, I was kind of, I had all the anxieties that I wish I could tell you I didn't have. Yeah. But somebody come up to me and saying, you know, it's going to be okay. And the answer was, if you lose this, it's still, you know, God's still in his heaven. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's going to be okay. And I think we all have to have that conviction about whatever we're doing. Yeah. Uh, about our, you know, job in the, like you said, in the factory or teaching a classroom or operating in a, you know, as a certain, whatever it is, we all have to have that conviction. I do think coming back to the conversation we're having, because you and I have talked before, this is a much more passionate society that we're living yeah. in now. I mean, people just, I was talking to somebody who's running for mayor in a, in a, in a race, nonpartisan, but he said, it's just, I can't tell you how, how wired everybody is. Yeah. Uh, and the intensity is unmatched. I think what we can, and so in this world that's so passionate and uh, it is so open to judgment. The thing that we can bring is, remember, we ha- we understand the greatest gift of all, and that's grace. Yeah. And because we've been the beneficiaries of grace, I would hope we would be seen as people of grace. Yeah. Not in the everything's okay, that yeah. we, we whatever you do, we're, we're fine with, but in the sense of, you know, through my own brokenness, I understand the brokenness that's here. And we understand that whether it be individual brokenness or systemic. Yeah. Um, and I hope we become seen in this world that's kind of passionate and intense and fighting for rights as the people that fully believe in truth. Yeah. But also, we because we've had the gift of grace, we get it. You know, one of the things I think that makes that difficult, when I first started out years and years ago, right. I was working for a United States congressman yeah. who was out of step with his party. Yeah. Really, really right. out of step with his party, his party leadership. And uh, he was not um, in the party that a majority of his constituents right. were in, but he was always elected with right. 80% of right. the vote. So he always, he never could demonize right. people on whatever the other side was because he was going to have to be with them yep. uh, all the time. There are very few people like that right now who are actually running for office yeah. where they have to appeal to both Democrats and Republicans, as well as independents. Instead, you have people who are worried about a primary yeah. in whatever party they're in, 
And so they don't even have to talk to each other. And then you add to that the sort of environment that we have right now where politics actually isn't. I mean, you talked about Howard Mm -hmm. Baker. Uh, A lot of what Howard Baker was doing as Senate Majority Leader, Senate Minority Leader, was thinking through what's the best way to get to a goal that most of us can agree on. That's not the case now. It's not. Although here's what I – this is theory, not I'm, yeah. not, I'm not, I'm not, but I wonder if we all feel that more than what's true. Here's the example I'd give. Mm. There's an organization that does polling in every state, so they pull it the same way in every state. The, the most popular senator in his, st- in his or her state is actually Bernie Sanders in Vermont. Okay, so they okay. say, well, that's Vermont. I get it. Yeah. Okay. The second or third highest rated governor is the Republican governor of Vermont. Uh-huh. Okay, so what I'm saying is— And the others, I think, would be Maryland and Massachusetts, right? Right. Yeah. But my point would be you got, you know, 70% of the people in in Vermont saying we love our Senator Bernie Sanders. Yeah. We, we know where he is on the political spectrum. You got 70% of the state also uh, saying we love our Republican governor, Phil Scott. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so my point is I wonder if people will give us more credit for being genuine about who we are and what we're trying to do than we think they will. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and part of it is so much of what is, it, it seems to me, and I think this is true really in the church world too, uh, you, you can have 85% of the people who are in a good place right. uh, and who are understanding each other, living with it, but you have that 15% on either side who are the ones who come on uh, social media and scream, this is life or death. That 85%, they're, they're not going to come on and say, hey, uh, this is what I think, but I could be wrong. And even I like the people I disagree with. That doesn't get you very far. I, I, actually, and it, by the way, that's true in office. The the governors and senators and people that you tend to know are those folks who are out making the noise. Yeah. Uh, my experience is you know, just what you said, there's 10 to 20 percent, you know, some on both sides of the spectrum that are making a lot of noise. And most folks are just saying, my life's full and busy. Tell me how this is going to affect me. Yeah. Well, and I think this is true in public life and in church yeah. life. That's, the people that are making all that noise yeah. don't tend to last very long. Yeah. And the people who actually have a legacy Right. Uh, are the people who are not responding that way. They're not seeing everything as a blood sport and, yeah. and aren't quarrelsome, but are people who actually have a sense of calling and a sense of respect for yeah. people who disagree with them. I, I hope that's right. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about in terms of your own spiritual formation? Right. How do you make sure that you keep yourself following Christ and in step with the Spirit and so forth? When you're in a you're in a vocation that very easily could consume you with busyness or with uh, sort of the pull yeah. of ego, I, I would say, and both of those are really true. And you know, the, the ego pull is a big one when you're off because pe- you t- the people you hear from are people who are yelling at you and saying you're the worst ever, or the people going you're the greatest yeah. ever. You don't hear a lot of people going you know in the in the middle. So that the the ego as well as the uh, oh I'm being I'm being shot at all the time. Those you're susceptible to both of them. But I actually would say three things. Number one, I don't know any substitute for setting aside personal time with God. I mean, call mm. it quiet time, call it whatever you want. Yeah. But you know, I'm I'm one of these people. I'm I can be very. I'm gonna run this many miles a week. I'm gonna do whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, 
I just need to say the same thing. I'm going to set aside this amount of time. And it's really easy for me to say, oh, man, I, I got to get I got an early flight yeah. or, you know, we're keeping the grandkids, whatever it is. So I think just being really committed to that. Number one. Number two, for me, the biggest thing has always been having other guys in my life that were around me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for 25 years when I was in Knoxville, every Friday morning at 615, uh, these four other guys would pull up my driveway and we would meet every Friday morning. And then in Nashville, when I, when I was here, I had a group of guys as well. Just that sense of accountability mm-hmm. and a sense of people every now and then grabbing you by the arm and saying, hey, Bill, that, that's not who you are. Huh? You're, yeah. you're doing something or saying something. That's not who you are. So that's it. And the third thing I'd say is this, and I, I probably have undervalued this too much in my life, but is worship. We're, mm. we're, we're created to worship. And mm-hmm. it's easy for me, like, man, we, we missed a couple of Sundays. We were, you know, traveling to see this child or we were on vacation or whatever. But I think the third thing for me is regular worship. Um, mm. And I don't know that I would have said that 20 years ago, but I would say it now. Mm. And do you, when you do quiet time, do you have like a an organized program? Or are you more sort of free-flowing, spontaneous yes, with it? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Depends. I mean, I, I've gone through seasons of both, and I, I'm kind of okay with that season. There's times I'm using somebody's devotional guide. It's I'm always It's always scripture and prayer. Sometimes I'm using a devotional guide of some type, sometimes yeah. not. Uh but it's uh, for me, it's more about setting aside that time and then actually keeping it, you know, inviolate. Last question. Yeah. We're here in Nashville, Tennessee yeah. right now. We're right down the street from yeah. Ryman Auditorium. Yes. Uh, Ken Burns' uh, series, yeah. Country Music, yes. uh, came out on PBS uh, not long ago. And so you've served as governor of yeah. this state where right. not just— Nashville, yeah. but Memphis. Yeah. So been, yeah. Uh, what? Well, in East Tennessee, I'd, move, I'd make oh, well, the argument kind of work yes, away from course. Bristol down to Knoxville. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, so the whole state is really right. a, a musical center for the entire United States. The best country music song. Oh, man. That is such a— uh, man. I, oh, man, <laughs> I saved the hardest brother. question for life. You know, I can tell you the—I I can— um, Chrissy and I went, it was Dolly's 50th anniversary yeah. uh, of being a member of the Opry. And it's hard for me to think of a performer who can touch her. I mean, she can, you know, she'll go to a concert, she'll play seven or eight instruments. Almost all the songs are songs that she's written and performed, and she has a sense of connection with the audience. Yeah. Uh, so if you ask me who's the best performer, I'd go with Dolly. The best song, oh, man, I, I'm going to clutch here, and I can't think of that one right now. So... I'm, okay. I'm not, I'm not sure I got one to yeah. pick, but yeah. I should have one for sure. Uh, I should have one. But the great thing about Dolly Parton, I bet there are many yeah. great things, but one of the she lives right down the yeah. the road from yeah. from us, and I've never met her, but I've met tons of people who have worked for yeah. her, and every single one of them are like that is the greatest person, and they're all like just doggedly loyal to her. And uh, I think that really speaks well. And as you know, with a lot of performers, that's not true. Right, There's a lot of folks that's like, well, they're great, but I don't, you know. Yeah. I'm doing it because it's a job. Uh, But she's, and and I I know lots of folks like that who have known her and been with her since she came out of Sevier County a long time ago. So. I mean, so if I'm going to pick one, just to, I'll pick I'll Always Love You. I mean, it's a hard song. Okay. It's yeah. a hard song to beat. Yeah, yeah. Bill Haslam, thanks so much for being with us today on Signpost. Always glad to have you here. This is Russell Moore, and you've been listening to Signposts.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.